I won't move. If I do, I'll take it with me. All right? So, all right, let me start that again. Uh, we are in discussions in Matthew, and uh, it's been brought to my attention that I'm not answering, I'm answering the questions, but I'm not repeating the questions when they are asked so that they show up on the, the recording, and so I will try to do better today on that. We are in chapter 9 of Matthew. I'm hoping to get through chapter 9. Uh, there is a connection between chapter 9 and 10, uh, but I really want to address that uh, later. So we're going to pick up at chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, it says that getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, came to his own city. Uh, and there they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, What are you thinking? Why are you thinking evil in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up and pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home, and when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Now, this passage is important. I talked about it a couple of weeks ago from Luke's gospel uh, in the resurrection sermon. Uh, this notion that um, there is the present world and there's the eternal world has a tendency for us to think then that this world is not important. The, the, the unbeliever over addresses this world's significance thinking it can be permanent. The believer sometimes ignores that the statement that there is another world and that God is there and that our loved ones are there and all of that is going on is a statement of our faith. And what Jesus does, both in his incarnation and in the miracles that he does, and ultimately in his resurrection, is to invade and incarnate and to... Uh, bring authority of the spiritual realm over the material realm to manifest that the spiritual realm is in fact there and superior. And so when he says to this man, your sins are forgiven, the man, he doesn't say you're healed, he says your sins are forgiven, uh, the scribes begin to say, hey, who does he think he is saying that he can forgive sins? Uh, and Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, says, okay, what's easier to say? It's very easy to say your sins are forgiven, in the same way that someone could say, be warmed and filled. I hope God blesses you, but doesn't help somebody, right? And so the idea is that Jesus then says, so you will know, so it will be manifest here, then get up, take your bed and walk, and now the man is healed. To demonstrate that he has the authority not only to heal but to forgive sins. And that ultimately in the kingdom to come sins will be obliterated. They will be gone from our lives and our resurrected bodies will not be subject to sin. But we will also have no sickness and no tears and no other problems that happen in this context. So this is a really important text for us to keep in mind. 
it is vital that God manifests into this present world as the assurance of the world to come in that context. So we'll stop at that point and open it up for you back on. All right, so the question is, Jesus then has authority to forgive sins. Yes, because he serves as our great high priest. And the book of Hebrews makes it clear that he didn't do it with a sacrifice of an animal, but he did it with his own sacrifice. And that's why the celebration of the death, burial, and resurrection is so central to our faith. Absolutely. Any others? So you want that talked about? All right. So the, the question is, if he knows our thoughts, we talked earlier in former times about uh, prayer is to be spoken, not thought. And so if he knows our thoughts, then he would know our, our prayers. Why can't we just do the thoughts? Well, the Bible says he knows what we want before we ask. So we don't even have to think it. it it's an infinite regression that way. The biblical pattern of prayer is to speak out loud. It is in recent times become very common for Christians to pray silently. Uh, and part of that is so we can pray individually. Uh, but the reality is when we're gathered together, we should be praying corporately. That's why written prayers are valuable in that, in that sense. Um, the danger of the thought prayer, as I usually uh, bring up, is when you are thinking, you tend to wander in your thinking. And you don't want to consider those wanderings prayers because sometimes they're ungodly thoughts, right? So it, it's, it's more focused and I think uh, more of the biblical pattern to pray out loud in that. Jesus said, uh, Lord, I, I know that you hear me always, right? Uh, so the idea was, yes, of course God knows our thoughts and our hearts, and he knows what's going to happen before it ever happens. That does not remove us from the obligation to manifest and behave, because again, much of what we are doing is on display before the angels. And I'm not sure they can read our thoughts, right? Yeah, okay. So the question is, uh, the people were awestruck glorifying God who had given such authority to men. Does that mean that they didn't fully recognize who Jesus was? Certainly. Um, there, there was great confusion about who Jesus was. We get several passages in the scriptures where Jesus says, who do men say I am? And they have all kinds of answers. Some of you think you're that prophet, going back to Deuteronomy 18, the prophet like Moses that God will raise up. Some think he's the Messiah. Some think he's Jeremiah. Some think he's Elijah, right? They're all trying to figure out what's going on. He's a prophet. They certainly saw him as a rabbi, but more than a rabbi, he is, he is somewhat... Because he's manifesting miracles, he's more than a rabbi. He's more than a teacher. So they are amazed that God is giving this kind of thing to men. I think what's not mentioned here, but is part of this, in their eyes. In other words, in their experience. Because they had read of that in times past. But it was not, it was not common in, in that framework. Even John, who people regarded as a prophet, did no miracles. 
right? So Jesus comes and he's manifesting miracles like Elijah and like Elisha and like Moses and therefore, you know, what's going on? I think that's, that's what this is about. Okay, so we'll move on to uh, verse 9. Uh, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. And it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating uh, with the tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This passage is an introduction in two ways. In some sense, it is an introduction to chapter 10, which is uh, what I like to call the first ISP trip of the disciples. Those of you who went to Cal Baptist know that, the uh, International Service Project. He's sending them out kind of on a mission trip, uh, a testing mission trip, and he gives them instructions. So what we are introduced here is the calling of the disciples. And the calling of the disciples is summarized in the calling of Matthew. So Matthew is at his tax collector's booth. They would set a booth up. They would receive the taxes. Uh, they were not um, well liked by their fellow Jews. It's fascinating that Matthew is called Levi, which means he's a Levite. Uh, giving of tithes would go to the Levitical uh, tribe in that sense. And uh, so he should have uh, been receiving that as a uh, as a Levite, if not a priest, probably a Levite. And in that context, uh, he uh, is not doing that. He's actually collecting money uh, from the Jewish people for Rome. Uh, so Jesus says to him, follow me. That's a typical thing for a rabbi to say to a person. It's a re request for them to become a disciple. The discipler chooses his disciples, not the other way around. Okay? Uh, and, and he comes up to Matthew and says, follow me. And he gets up and follows him. Now, he ends up, um, we're assuming here that this is Matthew's house. Um, he's reclining at the table in the house. And since Matthew is a tax collector, and tax collectors are not well-liked in general, most of his friends were probably also tax collectors, and the people associated with them were not that religious, and were therefore called by the religious community sinners. When I was growing up uh, in Youth for Christ, we had tended to talk about our non-believing friends as pagans. I have three pagan friends, and I'm working on them with the gospel. Kind of an interesting thing how groups define the other group, right? So sinners is the group who are not following the commandments and showing up at shul, the synagogue, and not doing what they're supposed to do. And so uh, the Pharisees then saw that Jesus is now eating with Matthew and his friends. And they come to Jesus' disciples 
who we only know of Matthew being one of them, right, at this point. And he says, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, your teacher is a rabbi. He's supposed to be holy. He's supposed to be righteous. What is he doing with these tax collectors and sinners eating in their house? So, Jesus hears this. And he says to them, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The purpose of Jesus coming is to come for those who are not ready for him. His coming is to call people back. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and turn. Now if you are already waiting for the kingdom to come. If you are already focused on trying to obey God and trust him for the kingdom to manifest. What part of that message is for you other than it's about to happen? You're not going to change your lifestyle. You're not going to need to do much because that's what you're ready for. And that's allegedly the situation of the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests. So Jesus is saying, I have come for those who aren't ready. I have come for those who are caught in their sin. I have come for those who are sick. Because a physician cannot help somebody who's well. He helps somebody who's sick. And quotes from the uh, Tanakh in that sense. I will have compassion and not sacrifice. God is wanting mercy to be the predominant motive of our life. And not sacrifice in that sense. Uh, sacrifice often is a manifestation after the repentance and the mercy has been shown. And so that's, that's part of what's going on here. So we'll stop it at that point. We're going to move on to um, verse uh, 14. Uh, then the disciples of John came to him, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment, and the worst tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine in fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, this section is really about the uniqueness of Jesus as... Uh, beginning to move Israel <coughs> toward the new covenant. Uh, Jeremiah said that a new covenant will be made. I will put my laws within them. Uh, going to be done by the Spirit of God. Jesus is preparing that new covenant community, uh, which begins with Israel and will expand through the gospel to the nations. And so John represents... In some sense, the height of what the Torah community had been about. He is, he is the 
the voice of the prophet crying for Israel to, to get back to their covenant and make the path straight for the Lord. Uh, he's that voice who's crying in the wilderness, make ready the, the, the highway of the Lord. So, what happens here is his disciples come and say, wait a minute now, we have periods of regular fasting. The Pharisees have periods of regular fasting. Uh, you guys seem to be eating a lot, you know? So it's tied again to this idea that they're out eating with, with the people and what is going on here, right? Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom. When you have a bridegroom, the bridegroom party is not a time to fast, right? You can imagine somebody saying, I'm going to have a, a bridegroom party uh, for my marriage that's coming up next week. I'd like you to all come over to my house. We're going to fast, Say, I, I don't think I want to go to that party, right? That's not much of a, there's no party there. With your bridegroom, you're celebrating with the bridegroom. And you, how do humans celebrate? We eat and drink and, and, and party. That's, that's what we do. So he says, they can't do that when I'm with them. But the time will come when I'm taken from them. And then they will fast. Fasting is a part of our religious disciplines, but there are appropriate times for fasting and there are times for not fasting. As Ecclesiastes says, there's a time and place for everything in that, in that sense. So uh, he is talking about that. Then he says, what I'm doing is something new. And you don't take an old uh, garment and put a new piece of cloth on it because the first time you wash that thing and that that new patch shrinks, it's going to tear and you're going to have a worse mess than you had before. And wineskins were were filled with new wine and they the fermentation happened and that would harden the wineskins. Once that was done, if you put new wine in it, it the fermentation process would rip them. So he says, you have to put them into new wineskins. So he says, in a sense, I'm creating a new pattern of how these commandments in the heart and expressed in the behavior of love will pattern themselves in my community. And therefore, my disciples are, in a sense, starting over. They're not going, not everything in it is new, but the, the overall process is new. Uh, when I started um, my um, experience in jiu-jitsu, I had started in judo and uh, I had gotten to a certain level with a green belt. And when I found a jiu-jitsu uh, teacher that I wanted, uh, I came in and he said, uh, w so you can keep your rank. And I said, no, I don't want to keep my rank. I took off that belt and started with a white belt because I was learning a different system. A lot of the things were going to be similar. In fact, most of the throws were the same throws, but there was a different attitude to them and a different style to them that's needed to be done. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. My disciples are going to have a fuller sense of what these commandments are about. They're going to have a different sense of what loving one another is going to be. And therefore, I need to establish this from a foundational place. And they will ultimately have all the things that you're talking about, but they will be somewhat different in that context. So, we'll stop that at that point. On to the... Uh, the last part here. 
uh, verse 18. While he was saying these things, a synagogue official came and bowed down to him and said, My daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years uh, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. It touched the tzitzi. Um, she said to herself, If I can touch his garment, I will be well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith, your trust, your understanding of who I am and what this tzitzi represents uh, has made you well. At once the woman was made well. And Jesus came to the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder. He said, Leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. And when he entered the crowd, uh, had the crowd sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And this news spread throughout all the land. Uh, and Jesus went on from there, two blind men following him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that you tell no one about this. But when they went out, they spread the news of him throughout the land. And as they were going, a mute demon-possessed man uh, was brought to him, and the demons were cast out, and the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed, saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. That's a little hyperbole there. But the Pharisees were saying, He casts out demons by the rulers of the demons. And Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, I'll look at that last section more next week. But I, want, I wanted to read this all together, because I wanted you to get a context. Jesus' ministry is a ministry where he is healing those who are sick. He is releasing those who are oppressed of evil spirits. He is raising the dead. All the things that manifest the presence of the kingdom in him. That is his message. You believe in a resurrection? I am the resurrection. You believe in a kingdom? I am the king. You believe in a Messiah? I am the Messiah. He's not doing it so much with words. He's doing it with actions. Because the rabbis, the Pharisees, the scribes, had taught the people that when the Messiah comes, he will heal the sick, he will raise the dead, he will do all these things. So Jesus is doing it. So what do the leaders now say of him? When the people go, wow, this is it. They go, oh, you know what? He's doing this by the prince of the demons. He's doing this by Beelzebub. He's doing this by an evil spirit. In other words, he's making, they're making the argument that he is doing this by the ruler of the demons. Because otherwise they have to acknowledge that the kingdom of heaven is at hand.
And so we begin to see this struggle between the leadership. Now here it's the Pharisees. Ultimately it will be the chief priests and the scribes, the priesthood, that will ultimately reject him. The Pharisees will be divided on Jesus. Some Pharisees we will see become secret believers. Some even ministered to him in his death. The Pharisees are on both sides of this issue. But the chief priests and the leadership are going to reject him, even though he is manifesting everything that they both know and have taught the people. And that's going to be part of this uh, problem that we see. And particularly the priests and the, the, uh, the Sadducees, because they don't believe in resurrection. If they acknowledge Jesus as raising the dead, and if they acknowledge Jesus himself as being raised from the dead, their theological system collapses. And so that becomes part of this. Now, notice that Jesus looks around and sees that the need is well beyond anything he could do. This reminds me of the story of Moses. You guys know the story. Moses, after the, uh, the people have been delivered, he's standing in front of the tent of meeting, and the people are lined up uh, coming to him for questions or prayer requests, and then he goes to the Lord, and his father-in-law Jethro says, what are you doing? He says, well, they come to inquire of the Lord. I go inquire of the Lord, and I come back, and he... Uh, uh, he tells me and I tell them. And Jethro says, you're going to wear yourself out and these people. There's too much need and there's only one of you. So what you need to do is you need to hear from the Lord and you need to teach men so that they can teach others and so that this can spread in that sense. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And what he's going to do in the next chapter is begin to send out his disciples. You, don't, you are not sent out until you are discipled. In the same way that you don't become a parent until you've grown up, you don't become a discipler until you have matured. And that parallel is what we're going to see in the next chapter. So, um, I think that covers it, but if there are some questions, we'll do that now. Okay, so the question is, why is Jesus telling them not to tell on him when he does something? Uh, we'll run into this throughout the Gospels. Jesus does something, does an act of mercy and compassion, and he uh, tells them not to tell. Because... If they tell their family, if they tell their immediate friends, what happens? People begin to tell people, more and more people tell, gets back to the leadership, and we already know the idea of the leadership, and Jesus will constantly say to his brothers and to his disciples, when they say, why don't you show yourself? If you want to be known, you need to show yourself, and he'll say, my time has not yet come. So what is going to be... Uh, the manifestation of him claiming his place as the King Messiah will come on what we call Palm Sunday. But prior to that, he is ministering more locally and more often than not, he will tell people, uh, don't, uh, don't spread this around, right? Uh, kind of the opposite of what we would think. 
Jesus is working on God's timetable. We have a tendency to try to do everything now and not think about God's timetable. So I think that's what that's about. Okay, so the question is, but if he heals a blind person or someone who can't walk uh, and and can't speak and all of a sudden they can, won't people know? Yes, but it will be known kind of in that local area. And the focus then is on the great thing that God has done. People won't necessarily be, oh, and it's this Jesus. Two things will happen to Jesus if the word gets out. Everybody who has a problem will come to him, right? And he won't be able to do what he's here to do. And secondly, the leadership will be in, be angered at him. So he's trying to monitor that, uh, moderate that somewhat.